Y'all turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 5. Um, as we continue our series on growing, talking about what God is trying to make you into. You see, coming to know Christ is not just about a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not just about avoiding hell when you die. It's about becoming someone new. God, God redeems you not just so you can go to heaven when you die, but so that you can be formed into His character. And that means more than just getting up on a Sunday morning and coming to church. And that means more than just saying no to a couple of vices that kind of mark us apart from people who aren't religious it means character qualities that we can't do on our own, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And last week, faithfulness. Today, we're going to talk about gentleness. Next week, we'll be talking about self-control, and then we'll talk about three more after that, uh, qualities that Christ is forming in our hearts and our lives. Now, years ago, uh, my wife and I were in a restaurant, and there was a TV on the wall that had, was tuned to ESPN, and the program they happened to be showing was World's Strongest Man. I don't know if you've ever seen this program, but essentially it's, it's, a, it's a competition between this, this small group of freakishly huge steroid users who gather together. Hey, truth is truth. Um, they gather together and they, they have these contests to see who can lift the most weight, who can do these feats of strength. So on, on this particular episode, the, these guys were having a race while pulling Greyhound buses. So each guy was pulling a Greyhound bus and see who could cross the line first. Um, they were lifting weights up over their heads, so basically the clean and jerk, but the weights were so heavy, the bars were literally bending in their hands. So it was pretty awesome. The one that really impressed me, though, was the car flip. So each guy had a, a car in front of him, and they'd start a clock and you know, blow a whistle or whatever, and whoever could flip their car onto its roof first won. And so I'm sitting here eating, and I'm talking to my wife, and I said, you know, that would be awesome if you could do that. Because think about it, if you're stuck in traffic, and, and the guy behind you is just laying on his horn, and you turn around, and he's making obscene gestures or whatever, just get out your car, don't even have to say a word, just walk over, flip the car over, right? <laughs> he flips you off, you flip his car. And I promise you, that is the end of the fight right there. I mean, because there's not really a comeback from you just flipped my car. You're, you're done and, and you walk away. So I'm sharing this with Carrie and she's really not impressed with my insight. And she said, feel free to practice on your car, but keep your hands off mine. And I think she was joking. I think that was an example of what we call sarcasm. So... Um, but what it really was, in my mind, was the law of the jungle. Because the law of the jungle says you have to win. The law of the jungle says you have to intimidate. It says kill or be killed. Always get in the first shot. Stand up for yourself. Don't get mad. Yep, you know the law of the jungle. Intimidate people. Let them know you're not somebody to be messed with. Don't let anybody push you around. Don't let anybody insult you. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. The law of the jungle is the reason why a parent's life changes when his son or daughter learns the word mine, right? The law of the jungle is the reason why a kid in elementary school learns to pummel smaller kids because it feels good to have people fear you. It's why a teenager gets mad that her boyfriend talked to a very pretty other girl and so she and her friends band together and use social media to ruin that girl's reputation destroy her life. 
It's why a young couple gets into a big fight because a little voice inside that husband's head says, you don't have to take that from her. That's why a a new manager at the plant comes right in on the first day of the job. He fires a group of people just to set a tone, just to let people know, you have to respect me. It's why the patron at a restaurant berates his waiter and stiffs him on the tip because he thinks the service was a little too slow. Or an employee digs up some dirt on the guy who got the promotion he wanted, hoping if he spreads enough bad rumors about this guy, maybe he'll get fired. It's why anyone, anywhere who feels they've been discriminated against, abused, insulted, slandered, or in any way done wrong, their first step, first step is to hire a lawyer and go to court. The law of the jungle is what was the root behind what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia yesterday. And you might say, well, that's racism. What is racism but the law of the jungle? It's saying, stand up for my kind and stand against those who are different. The law of the jungle is the reason why most wars in human history have come about. Most wars would be prevented if the man in charge, and it's almost always a man, isn't it, would say, instead of my pride counts, the lives of my people count. If he would put the lives of his own people and of others ahead of his own ambition, his own pride, war would stop. Jesus speaks very clearly about the law of the jungle. Right here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, this is in the middle of a section we call the Beatitudes. That is a word we have invented. It's, it's, it's based on the Latin word that means blessed. Jesus is talking about who's really blessed in this world. In Matthew 5, 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus says, you can't follow me and obey the law of the jungle. If you want to be what this world says you need to be, if you want to follow the law of the jungle and have your own way all the time, you're not following me anymore. You have to choose. The servant of Christ has to reject the law of the jungle. And that's hard for us, especially when he goes on and gets more specific in verses 38 and 42 when he talks about if someone backhands you, you take it, you turn the other cheek. Or he says if someone takes your cloak, you give them your tunic as well, your t-shirt essentially. If someone says, here, you carry this load for me for one mile, you say, well, I'll go two miles. We don't like the sound of that. There's all kinds of objections that, that cry out within us. Even those of us who are lifelong Christians. We have a hard time with this. So what I want to do with the rest of my time with you is is talk about three objections we have to the idea of gentleness and why it's so hard for us. And at the end, tell you why it's available to everyone. You You can live this life if you truly want it. Number one, objection number one. People say, well, does this mean Christians are supposed to be weak? Does this mean I have to be a weakling, that, that Christianity is a, is a religion, is a movement for people who are weak, who are pushed around? Part of the misunderstanding here is, is just language, because in English, the word meek, blessed are the meek, rhymes with the word weak. Keep in mind, Jesus wasn't speaking English when he said these words. He was speaking Aramaic, and that word doesn't rhyme. The, the English, the Aramaic word for meek doesn't rhyme with weak, nor does it in Greek, which is what... Uh, Matthew was writing in when he wrote this gospel. But in English, it does. We hear meek and we think weak, but that's not what meek means. It means strength under control. A meek person is not someone who is weak. It's someone who doesn't use his strength for selfish motivations. 
It's someone who doesn't think of himself or herself. Puts others first. Let's others win if necessary. Meekness, gentleness is strength under control. Part of our problem with this is that we've been raised in a society that teaches that strength is aggression. Selfish aggression. When I was a little boy, the, the number one box office draw was John Wayne. Everybody, I, we've all seen John Wayne movies, right? I mean, I love those movies, but let's face it, John Wayne never walked away from a fight. He never lost a fight. He definitely never cried. That just informed what it meant to be strong. When I grew into a teenager and a young adult, the, uh, the, the big stars were Clint Eastwood, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not exactly tender people. Today, even the female characters in movies are aggressive. Every action movie today, every single one, features at least one 100-pound female who can outfight a dozen muscular guys without breaking a nail or messing up her hair. The laws of physics don't apply. And so we get this message constantly preached to us, which says, strength is not turning the other cheek, it's breaking the other jaw, right? But Jesus, the man who said these words, was not a weak man. You don't call someone weak who created an entire universe with a spoken word. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, or John chapter 1 tells us that Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. If you can speak a universe into existence, you can do anything. Yet Jesus never used that strength for his own selfish means. See, there's a difference between those two kinds of strength. When I was, uh, years ago, when my family went to the Houston Rodeo, we always liked to go early. We liked to go to the stock show park because I grew up in the country. I used to be in 4-H, and so we'd go and look at the animals. Well, one year... We were there early and we saw a draft horse competition. So draft horses, I didn't know this term until that day, draft horses are big breeds of horses that are, that are bred not for riding but for pulling heavy loads. So Clydesdales, for instance, are an, are an example. So they had this competition where these draft horses were pulling stuff. It was sort of like the horse version of the world's strongest man. Um, and I was amazed at these magnificent animals. They were way bigger than the guys controlling them. And yet... That guy sitting on the wagon, he just had to barely tug that rein or crack a whip behind him. The whip didn't even have to touch the horse, and the horse would understand. Here's what it means. It was strength under control. Then later that night, we watched the rodeo. And of course, the high point of the rodeo is the bull rides. Here you have another extremely strong animal. It uses its strength quite differently. It's not using its strength to help people. It's not using its strength in cooperation with others. It's using its strength to intimidate, to throw off anybody who tries to uh, cooperate with them, uh, to stomp, to kick, to gore. I mean, just being on a bull for eight seconds is a, is a tremendous achievement because they're so mean. Which one are you more like? Are you a draft horse or are you a bull? Do you use your strength to help or to harm? Do you use your ability to lash out and defend yourself and, and punish others and intimidate to get back at those who hurt you? Or do you use your strength to encourage, to serve, to glorify the holy God? That's the question you need to ask. There's a man in Scripture who actually learned to be gentle, and that was Simon Peter. You know, you think about Peter 
All through the gospel, you see him. One of the things I love about him, the, the honesty of the portrayal, every time Peter was always the first to speak. He always wanted to be in charge. He always wanted to be first. So whenever Jesus would ask a question, Peter's hand would shoot up. The night before Jesus died, he was the first one to say, listen, all these other losers, they may run away from you, but I will never leave you no matter what, even if I have to die with you. So when Jesus is arrested, Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the men in the, in the crowd. Later that night, when Jesus is on trial and Peter is confronted three different times by people who say, hey, weren't you with that rabbi from Nazareth? Peter's self, self-preservation instinct kicks in. The law of the jungle kicks in and he says, loyalty is no good if I'm not still alive. I, I have to take care of myself. I have to look out for number one. No, I don't know this man. I have no idea. I've never seen him before. Weeks later, that same guy, that same Peter, stands before the very same council that condemned Jesus to death and his law of the jungle self-preservation mindset is gone. This council says to him, you must stop preaching in the name of that man we crucified. And he says, hey, you can do what you want to to me. I have to obey God rather than men. I cannot stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. And they lash, he and they tie he and John to, uh, to a post and they lash their backs 39 times. And those two men walk away rejoicing. Hallelujah, Lord, you, you, you considered us worthy to suffer in your name. You know, tradition says, Scripture doesn't tell us, but tradition says that during the reign of Nero, Peter was crucified upside down, and that's how he died. And according to the tradition, that was Peter's own choice. He said to the executor, executors, you can't kill me the same way my, my Lord died. So they said, okay, we'll put you head over heels. Let me ask you something. When, when Peter was giving his life, was he stronger or weaker than when he was thinking only of himself? That's a man who learned gentleness. His strength increased when he began to use it for others. Second statement, second objection, won't I get pushed around? People have a problem with this. Okay, so gentleness is the way I'm supposed to be. I get it, but won't that mean I'll get pushed around by people who I could beat? Well, let me ask you this in response. Was Jesus mistreated? Was Jesus falsely accused? Was Jesus nearly killed time after time and plotted against and slandered? Was Jesus rejected by his own people? Was he delivered over to the Gentiles who put nails in his hands and feet? Was he spat upon as he died? Yes, yes to all those questions. Jesus was mistreated because he chose the path of gentleness. And he said these words before he died in John chapter 15, 20. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Not my favorite promise from the Bible. In the chapter we've been studying, chapter 5, verse 11, he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. Notice he doesn't say blessed are you if people insult you, persecute you. He says when. He promises it's going to happen. Rejoice and be glad, he says, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wish I could stand up in front of you today and say, hey, if you 
choose the path of gentleness, then your enemies will always be so impressed by that, they'll stop being mean to you. That won't always happen. Sometimes it will. We'll get to that later. Sometimes they'll take advantage of you. Sometimes they'll see you as an easy target. Will you get pushed around? Sometimes, yes. Now let me say a couple of things in clar to clarify. Number one, sometimes when we as Christians get mistreated, we deserve it. Sometimes I've seen Christians who do wrong and face justice, and it's just. Sometimes I've seen Christians who are hated by non-Christians because they're arrogant, because they're rude, because they're self-righteous. That's not persecution. That's justice. Second thing I need to say, the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of Jesus that we're reading here today should not be taken out of context to imply pacifism. You know what pacifism says? It says that there is never a call for violence. It's never a call to take up arms. There's never a call to resist. And I, listen, I have all the respect in the world for Mennonites and Amish and, and other Christians who believe in pacifism, have that conviction. I just don't believe they're interpreting the Scripture correctly. I think they're taking verses out of context because, for instance, Abraham, Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, David are just a few of the many servants of God in Scripture who took up arms and God commanded them to do it and blessed them for doing it. Romans 13 says God gave the government a sword for a purpose. In other words, Christians who serve in the army or the other armed forces, Christians who serve as uh, police officers and, and other peace officers are doing God's will. And they are a tool for good that punishes evil, that exalts righteousness. Sometimes they have to get violent. Not only that, but even those of us who are civilians, sometimes we're called upon to stand up for those who are weaker than us. Sometimes we're called upon to defend our homes, to defend those who are the victims of injustice, and that is right and that is good. Jesus, after all, was the one who, the week before he died, he made a whip out of cords and physically drove out the people who were blocking the path of the temple, who were in the, the, the court of the Gentiles. He was standing up for people like me who aren't Jewish, saying, if you get in the way of non-Jews worshiping my God, then you'll have to answer to me. Sometimes you and I have to, have to take up arms, so to speak. We have to stand up for those who are weaker. But let's be honest. Very few of us can point to any examples of when we've done that. Instead, all of our examples of aggression and anger are about our own pride, about our own reputation, about our own feelings. That's why we get angry. That's why we get aggressive. And so the path of gentleness that God is calling us to essentially calls us to say, hey, Lord, I know there's going to be times when I get insulted, when I get humiliated, when I get mistreated, but I choose to follow you anyway. I choose the path of Jesus. There's a third objection. The third objection says, well, what about justice? I mean, if Christians are, are, are acting in a meek and gentle way, and if, if we just allow people sometimes to uh, win the argument, if, if we just refuse to strike back, if we refuse to take vengeance, then, then does that mean that evil always wins? No, it doesn't. Every parent knows this scenario. You walk into a room just at the moment one of your kids hits the other one or throws the remote control at the other one or calls them some awful name. 
and immediately you punish that kid, right? That's your job as a parent. And the kid's response is always the same. It's always, well, you didn't see what he did to me. Now, why do they say that? Because kids have this innate sense of justice. We all do. If something evil happens to us, we think the other person needs to pay. That's something that's in us because it's the image of God. God is a God of justice too. My wife had this really great answer once. I remember uh, her saying this to Will when he was little and he had gotten mad at his sister. And she said, when you lash out at Kaylee, whatever you do to her is all, that we're gonna, is all that's going to happen to her. Whereas if you would have come to us from the beginning and just told us what she was doing, we would have punished her. And it would have changed things. See, this way you just end up getting in trouble. But if you let us handle it, things will get better. And I thought that was really good advice. But it's biblical. That's what God says to us. Romans 12, 19, one of the most practical verses you'll ever read. Y'all listen to this. If you've got a grudge against anyone, listen. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I love these people who say, well, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. The God I believe in doesn't have wrath. Well, then you've never experienced injustice. Anybody who's ever experienced injustice wants a God of wrath, wants a God who takes up the side of those who've been pushed around. And what God says here in Romans 12, 19 is, hey, if you're going to take your own vengeance, if you're going to hate that person, and you're going to try to get back at them, I'll let you have it all day. But if you'll turn it over to me, then I'll make sure that real justice gets done. And you'll be freed of the hatred and the bitterness that you feel. And justice is done at the same time. So, more grown-up example than the one of my children. Uh, when I was a new pastor, first church I ever pastored, little country church, actually the church I grew up in, and they didn't have a young adult Sunday school class, so I volunteered to start teaching one. So there was a guy in the class who was going through just a terrible divorce, and they were in the midst of a custody battle, and, and his ex-wife had uh, accused him of all kinds of awful things, um, to get leverage, and he was just angry. He was just hateful towards her because of what she'd done. And um, So in the middle of my Bible study, he speaks up. I don't even know if it related to what we were talking about, but he speaks up and he says the following. He says, you know, I just daydream about the day that I'm driving through town and I see her out in the street and I just am able to just run her down and end all of this. Now, let me tell you something. When you're 26 years old and you've just gotten out of seminary and this is your first experience as a pastor and you're trying to teach the Bible and a guy says that, you feel pretty worthless at that moment. I mean, I had nothing to say. I'm just, uh, yeah, Lord, what? Yeah, I don't know. And right then, a woman in the class spoke up and she said, listen, John, not his name, John, why don't you just turn her over to God? Because trust me, he can punish her way better than you can. And his whole countenance changed. It's like, oh, yeah, let daddy handle it. And, and that sentence changed his life. He was, he was more at peace after that. Now, I would add this. I would add this to her words because this is the whole biblical truth. Don't just forego your own justice. Absolutely do that. But if you want to obey the Scriptures totally, if you want to obey the way of Christ, then you return good for evil. I know you don't want to hear this, 
Romans 12 goes on to say, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus would say, love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you. Begin to pray for that person. Begin to treat them with kindness, even if they don't even act sorry for what they did. Begin to treat them with love and respect. Begin to treat them the way they should have been treating you all along. And here's a miracle that starts to happen when you do that, and you do it consistently. What starts to happen, I've seen this before. I've seen it in my own life. You stop even worrying about what's going to happen to them. You're no longer thinking, hey, justice needs to happen. Lord, when are you going to bring the hammer down? And you start thinking, wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be great if they repented and they got right with God? Wouldn't it be great if they got saved? Wouldn't it be great if... if she and I or he and I reconciled and people would say, hey, didn't, didn't he do this to you? Yeah, that's okay, but it, you know, we're okay. We're brothers. Abe Lincoln, at the end of the Civil War, allegedly there was a group of uh, radical Republicans, northern senators who were, who were gathered around him and they were accusing him of being too soft on the South. The war was ending and he didn't want to have war trials for all the commanders of the Confederacy. He didn't want to, uh, you know, he didn't want to treat the South as traitors. He wanted to bring them back uh, in a peaceful way. And, and he said, listen, guys, don't I defeat my enemy when I make him my friend? Don't we ultimately defeat our enemies when we make them brothers and sisters? That's the plan of Christ. Will it always happen? No. There are plenty of times when our gentleness will be met by even more meanness. But what if taking the path of gentleness means that once in the course of your life, some angry, aggressive person turns to Christ and is saved? Wouldn't it be worth it to see one person spend eternity in the presence of God because you chose the path of gentleness? It can happen. It does happen. It will happen. And it's almost never done. Sad to say, even among Christians, it's almost never done. Picture Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who's just met him. Pilate doesn't care anything about Jesus. He's just some Jew. Pilate does want to set him free, though. He's got this innate sense of justice, and he also knows it would make the Jewish leaders angry. And Pilate, that's what he's all about. On the other hand, he doesn't want to set him free if there's any chance that he can be accused of setting free a guilty man. So he comes up with this great scheme. He says, hey, there's this tradition at Passover time. I always set free a prisoner. Well, this time I'm going to let you choose which prisoner I set free. So here's Barabbas, and he brings out of his prison the most notorious guy he has, this insurrectionist, a, 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 what we would call a terrorist today. He stands in before the people and Jesus on one side, already beaten. Barabbas on the other, nothing but hatred in his eyes. He says, which one do you want me to release? Here's Osama bin Laden. You want him out in the public again? Or do you want this gentle teacher from Nazareth? And to a man, they cry out, give us Barabbas. Send Jesus to the cross. And it's easy for us to look back and shake our heads and say, boy, if I would have been there, I would have stood up for Jesus. I would have spoken out for him. But every time we choose the path of selfish aggression, we, we reveal the truth. Because every time we lash out at someone, every time we gossip about someone, every time we get passive aggressive to try to make someone feel guilty, every time we try to rally people onto our side or we put somebody on blast on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat, anytime we yell or scream or insult or cuss, what we're really saying is, give me Barabbas. I don't want the way of Jesus. I don't want that at all. I want, 
I want the one, I, I want to be the one who dominates. I want the one who I want to be the one who gets his way. Give me Barabbas. But on the other hand, if we'll choose the path of gentleness, miracles take place. Matt Chandler, some of you know, is the pastor of the Village Church in Dallas. A few weeks ago, he and his family were on vacation. They went down to a beach where they found uh, the, the shore covered with these multicolored stones. Beautiful. They'd never seen anything like it. And they asked someone, what is this? I think we have a picture of what I'm talking about. And they said it was sea glass. Now, so of course, they go on their smartphones. They're looking up, well, what is sea glass? And here's the story. Sea glass is just ordinary glass that gets tossed off ships or dumped in the ocean somewhere or another, broken bottles and other broken, jagged shards of glass go into the water. And after the course of years of tumbling around in the surf, they turn smooth and polished and beautiful. And in fact, people spend lots of money. In fact, in our early service, Hilda Moffat, one of our ladies that goes to the 830 service, came out and showed me afterwards. She had this beautiful necklace on made of sea glass, and it was gorgeous. And here's the thing. It takes 30 to 40 years for a jagged shard of glass to turn into a smooth, polished, beautiful stone. Now, here's how that relates to us. On our own, here I've preached this sermon about gentleness. Hopefully it's been somewhat persuasive to you. What I don't want is for you to go away saying, okay, I'm going to try really hard to be gentle. Let me tell you, you're going to fail. Because deep down inside your heart, you're still a two-year-old. You and I both are. You're a two-year-old with bigger fists and sharper words and more resources. And you can't do it. But if you submit yourself to the process of sanctification. See, here's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not good advice. It's good news. And the good news is this. God can change you. Jesus didn't just die to save you from hell. He died to make you the person you've always wanted to be. The person you were created to be. But it takes time. It takes every day waking up and saying, Lord, make me gentle. Lord, make me loving. Make me joyful. Make me kind. Make me patient. Teach me peace. All those qualities I don't have on my own. It takes repentance every time you see that flesh, that old man or old woman coming out of you and acting in a way that's inappropriate and, and saying to the Lord, Lord, that's not who I want to be. Please help me change. It takes finding people who are good role models to you. There's someone in your life who you know who is strong, who's a draft horse, but they're gentle. Become that person's friend and hang around with them. Not in a creepy way, but enough that you can learn from them. Are you willing to submit to that process? Because I know, I know there's a part of you that's like, oh, it's not worth the effort and I like who I am and boy, if I give up on all this, all this selfish aggression, then you know, I'm not going to have as much fun. You don't know how peaceful it is to live a life of harmony with people around you. A life that touches people in a powerful, life-changing way where you can lay down at night and say, I wasn't perfect today, but God used me. Where you can face the end of your days and know that because of what God has done through your life, people are walking the streets of gold. Families are reunited. That's the life God wants for you.